Blog Talk Radio. and Sportsbeat Radio, this is Sportsbeat, a provocative, insightful, informative, and educational show that we hope will educate the sports listeners in the specific of sports. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the listener. And with that said, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question over and over sports radio, but we like to think of ourselves as informative and educational radio. So why not sit back, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you will find the program informative, educational, and above all, enjoyable. And with that said and done, this is Sports Beat, and we're coming at you live. And I'm your host, John Spoolis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another segment of Sports Beat Radio Talking Sports for this Tuesday program, the second day of May, 2023. Thanks so much for joining us on this segment, and glad you could be with us. Uh, today we're talking about the 1965 All-Star Game of the American Football League. And you heard the uh, preamble of the show, the great Ron Mix, uh, one of the great uh, tackles, Hall of Fame tackles for the San Diego Chargers, talking about what happened during that period. We'd like to thank uh, YouTube and the Pro Football Hall of Fame for the footage and, you know, it was an interesting time back in the middle 60s. The American Football League had just gotten off the ground. It was in its fifth year of uh, procurement. Uh, it started in 1960 as the brainchild, so to speak, of Lamar Hunt. We've been through that many times. You know that I am a great proponent of the American Football League, grew up on it, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, as many of us have. And uh, Lamar Hunt, uh, you know, a wealthy uh, Dallas oil man, his family was uh, very wealthy from the oil business, and he put together uh, some of his friends like uh, Baron Hilton of uh, Hilton Hotel fame and uh, Bud Adams, another oil-rich uh, person who uh, would own the Houston Oilers, 
and the league was procured with a charter member of eight teams. But uh, it was a time, of course, when we had what we called Jim Crow in the South. There were certain places in the South that black athletes were not welcome. They certainly were welcome on the field, and people would cheer them and, and uh, you know, speak highly of them. But once they put on their civilian clothes, they were second-class citizens. And so the 1965 AFL All-Star game uh, had uh, racism sprinkled throughout it. And uh, you heard uh, Ron Mix talk about it. It was a situation where the black players who flew in, and these were players of, of magnitude. These were guys who uh, certainly could have been in the NFL. They chose to sign with the AFL, people like Earl Faison and uh, Abner Haynes, who was uh, one of the early stars of the AFL, uh, you know, the great Cookie Gilchrist, uh, you know, you name it, uh, they were uh, there, and they – Unfortunately, they couldn't uh, get cabs uh, for uh, when they got to the uh, airport. Uh, there were taxis of white drivers who would not allow them to get in. They said that you'll have to hire a black taxi. And, you know, when you look back at it, it's, it's, it's amazing that we lived in a period of so much hatred and so much universality, you know, thinking that we were better than other races, than other religions. And, uh, you know, if you're uh, a godly person, you believe that God created everybody equally in his image. But there's a lot of people that didn't feel that way then. And so uh, the uh, 1965 AFL game was boycotted by some of the black uh, athletes uh, in the American Football League, and one of the proponents of that was Ron Mix, who was a white player. Uh, Ron Mix uh, has mentioned many times to me and also uh, in interviews uh, how dreadful he felt uh, about that happening. So the game, uh, you know, when you look at it, uh, you know, you, you have to uh, admire, you know, what was going on. So the Civil Rights Act of 64 had been passed outlawing discrimination. That was the brainchild of uh, President Lyndon Johnson. And the Sugar Bowl had just taken place featuring a number of African-American players, and no incidents of racism were reported. And this isn't to say race relations were calm. It was far from it. But everything seemed to be in place for the 65 All-Star Game without incident, which would take place in the city of New Orleans. So fresh off the AFL championship, uh, 10 Bills were on the Eastern team, All-Star team that year, including uh, Butch Beard, uh, Butch Bird, I should say, I'm sorry, and he was, uh, he was eager to go. He said all the cabs were lined up in front of the airport. And I walked out with my bag and went up to the first cab driver, who was white, and he said uh, he was on his break. I said, okay, no problem. I didn't think anything about it, to be honest. So I went to the second one and then the third one, and then this black cab driver came up to me and said, are you looking for a cab? And I said, yes. So Bird really didn't realize it at the time, but his difficulty in hailing a cab on the first few tries was probably not a coincidence. Obviously, it wasn't. And many of his African-American teammates had already faced incredible discrimination upon their arrivals in New Orleans. And some received taxi rides to the wrong locations and were forced to get out of the car. Others couldn't get a taxi at all, and that wasn't the worst of it. 
one of the ball players was saying that a gun wasn't pulled on him, but as he tried to make his way into the restaurant, the guy pulled uh, back his jacket and showed the gun and said, you're not allowed in here. That's what uh, Butch Bird said. So after a ball of a night out on the town with a few all-stars, Bird received a phone call early the next morning from Bill's teammate, Ernie Warlick, telling him to come to the meeting in an hour at the hotel's ballroom to decide whether or not they would play the game. And this would be the 65 All-Star game. Bird said he was taken aback. He said, I heard the stories, but personally nothing had happened to me, so I went to the meeting, and I won't say every ball player was there. But the room was full with white ball players and black ball players, and very emotional discussion was taking place. And as Bird recalls, Ernie Ladd, who was about 6'9", he was a huge man for the uh, Chargers, and uh, Cookie Gilchrist were leading the discussion among African-American players, and Ron Mix, as we said, of the Chargers, and another memorable figure in Bill's history, Jack Kemp, quarterback of the Bills, were leading the discussion amongst the white players, and all the white ball players wanted to play. That's what Butch Beard said. The black ball players didn't know which way they wanted to go, but Ernie Ladd and Cookie Gilchrist were so loud and so strong in their ascendance that soon they began to sway the black ball players. Bird wanted to play, was coming off of a great rookie season, and was thrilled to be included in a group of legendary football names at what would be first of many all-star games. But with Cookie at the helm, a decision was soon made. So if you knew Cookie, this is what Bird said, he had his thoughts. He was single-minded, like he did many times during games. He just took over and said what he had to say and made it stick. He was a natural leader. So the African-American players gathered their luggage and headed back to the airport to return home that day, effectively initiating the boycott. They found out that the white players uh, shortly followed suit. And as we heard in the uh, beginning of the show, Ron Mix, he gave a little speech to the white ball players in the room and said, guys, I want to play the game. However, I respect what the black ball players are going through, so I'm not playing. And then Jack said the same, Kemp, so that turned the tide with the white ball players, so none of them would play because of leadership of Mix and Jack Kemp. So Bird landed in Buffalo and headed home to find his wife on the phone, getting word right at that moment that the All-Star game had been moved to Houston. And he didn't even take his coat off and went right back to the airport. The game went off without much to do in Houston. And the real history had already been made. The 1965 AFL All-Star Game boycott was the first ever boycott of a professional sports game host city by players themselves. At a time of widespread racial unrest and social indignity, the act transcended the sport. So Butch Bird said, it didn't dawn on me until I read accounts in various newspapers, and you could see what an event this really was. We had to take a stand. And they did. And so, you know, the 1965 AFL All-Star Game uh, was played in Houston. It was moved to Houston uh, because they felt the proponents of the AFL, the guiding fathers of the AFL, felt that, uh, including Lamar Hunt, that uh, it would be safer to play there, less discrimination. And, you know, we saw this... uh, all through the 40s, when Jackie Robinson was the first black player and Larry Doby was the first black player in the American League, 
uh, not being able to travel with the team. Uh, Bill Russell, the great uh, 11-time champion of the Celtics, had uh, those types of problems early in his career. You know, and it's interesting because uh, people will cheer the black athlete or the minority athlete, and yet, as I said earlier, when they put on their civilian clothes, it's a different story. You know, well, you know, you won the game for us, and we're proud, but you can't eat in our restaurant. You won the game for us, and we're proud, but you can't sleep in our hotels. You know, you won the game, and we're proud of you, but you can't get into a white taxi. You won the game for us, and we're proud, but you can't drink out of the white water fountain. You won the game for us, and we're proud, but more than three of you uh, African Americans cannot congregate on the corner of a street. And I had seen this, you know, in my, with my own uh, upbringing. I had lived in the South for a while, and uh, I remember an incident that I wanted to relate that I still remember. And this happened back in the 60s. We were living in Virginia at the time, Virginia, uh, Newport News, uh, right on the coast of uh, Virginia. My father was a lieutenant commander of submarines in the uh, Navy. We moved around a lot. And one specific uh, incident is uh, one of my uh, friends, a white friend, and one of my black friends, we used to call him Little Gene. Uh, He was just a shrimp of a kid, uh, and he was like a jackrabbit. He was really fast. And so we were walking down the street, uh, going back to my house. I don't recall where we were. We were playing somewhere. And so it was little Gene in the middle, a a black uh, kid, and then my white friend next to him. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw a station wagon start to pull up behind us very slowly. And uh, I thought maybe they were asking for directions. And so uh, as they got closer, I saw that there were four men in the station wagon, a driver, a passenger, and two uh, men in the back seat. And as they approached us, they asked us, uh, boys, what are you doing? And we said, well, we're, we're walking uh, home. And he said, uh, who's your friend, meaning the uh, little Gene? And we said, well, that's, that's uh, our friend, Little Gene. And he said, uh, Little Gene, he said, uh, you don't belong here. He said, your kind belong over near uh, the other side of the railroad tracks. And so he said, you get your ass back over there. He said, and uh, you two, speaking of myself and my white friend, he said, you tell your mamas when you get home that the Klan is out tonight. And, you know, I didn't know what that was. I remember going home and I... I think I got it wrong. I don't know if I said can or clan or whatever. My mother knew what it was. She became uh, very, very uh, indignant. My mother was all of about five feet, but you never pissed her off. She started to call some of the neighbors and the police and so forth. And that night, uh, the woods surrounded our uh, – we lived in a cul-de-sac. They used to call them circles then. And uh, the clan was out. We saw them uh, on their horses and their white – Uh, uniforms with their pointy hats, and uh, they were not too far from our house. Uh, And probably what happened, most likely, was those four men in the uh, station wagon were Ku Klux Klan members. They hated black people. They hated Catholics. They hated everybody. And if you asked them why they hated, they probably couldn't tell you because they were brought up to hate. 
I have seen interviews of racists who are asked, why do you hate African-Americans? And they would say, because they're black. And, you know, without thinking of anything else to say, that's why they didn't like them. So prejudice is something that is learned. Um, I remember a story uh, years ago uh, when I was young, and I uh, think I said this on another show. Uh, My cousin and I were in South Jersey, and this black man got off the bus, and we called him the N-word, and we thought we were real funny. And he sprinted toward us. I never saw anybody run so fast. And he said, uh, you know, what did you guys call me? And he was a big man. I mean, he could have killed both of us. And I remember at the dinner table uh, that night, my father, who was on leave, uh, asked us what we were doing. And I remember vividly we were having hamburgers and French fries and Cokes, which was kind of the popular dish back in the 60s. And my uh, father asked, you know, what were you guys doing? And I had said proudly, uh, we called this man the N-word. And I'll never forget, it was some probably 60 years ago, or almost 60, my father dropped his fork and he said, what did you just say? And so I said it again, what we called this man. And he said, that's what I thought you said. And he put his fist in the air and he said this, meaning his fist, only gets you this. And he held his other fist up. He said, there's enough hatred in the world. We don't need you adding to it. So this is what's going to happen, my father said. He said, you're going to go to the bus stop tomorrow, because I had told him that this guy got off the bus and that we called him that name. And he said, you're going to apologize to this man. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, no. And my father said, you're man enough to call him that. You're man enough to face him. And so I couldn't sleep the whole night. I remember the day came and... I knew that I was going to have to probably around 5 o'clock go up to the bus stop. And sure enough, my father didn't say a word to me. I thought maybe he forgot about it. And sure enough, right around, I don't know, 20 of 5, my father said, are you ready to go to the bus stop? And with fear in my legs and, you know, a lump in my throat, I headed. It seemed like it was an eternity to get there. And the bus comes. My father's probably standing, I don't know, maybe five yards behind me. And the bus stops, and the African-American man doesn't get out. And the bus starts again, and I thought, wow, you know, great, this is great. You know, uh, I don't have to say it. We got away with it. And much to my dismay, the bus stops about, I don't know, maybe 20 yards after it's uh, initially stopped, and out comes the black African-American man that I called the name to. And my heart pounded. I started to sweat. I couldn't speak. And my father says, is that him? And I said, yes. And he says, go do what you got to do. And so I approached him, and he first seemed, you know, a little reluctant. But then he looked at me and remembered, and I said, I, sir, I said, I wanted to say something to you. I said, I wanted to apologize to you for what I said yesterday, for what we said, my cousin and I. And he said, uh, what was that? I think he well knew. And uh, I reminded him what we called him. And I'll never forget, his hand reached out to 
clasped my hand in a handshake, and my hand disappeared in his hand. He was a big man. He was probably 6'5". And he, and he saw my father, and I remember him acknowledging my father through, the, through a look over my shoulder. Uh, and he said, we need more people like you. He says, I accept your apology. And he said, uh, your cousin uh, should have been here as well. He said, because you're more of a man than he is. He says, I wish you uh, all the best. And the reason I relate that story is, you know, of all the things that happened to the AFL players in the 1965 All-Star Game with the black athletes, and some of those guys were huge. I mean, Buck Buchanan was a monster. Ernie Ladd was a monster. But they were, you know, they were gentle people. They were used to being scorned. And getting back to my story, uh, had my father not chastised me about what we did, I would have probably continued to do it because prejudice is a learned evil. You become prejudiced because you learn to be prejudiced, and then it's incorporated into your soul. You're never taught that it's wrong. Now, I'm not saying that all Southern people are prejudiced. There were a great majority of them that were because they were brought up that way, white people thinking uh, evil against African Americans. And so I learned my lesson at a very young age. I think I was about 10 when that happened, maybe 11 and I realized uh, the evilness of prejudice because my father demanded not only uh, that I repent, but I face what I initiated. And so these great players of the American Football League were victims of evil, of people who possessed universality about themselves who felt that they were better than someone else because they were it was a learned behavior it's like bf skinner said the great uh, psychologist at harvard a conditioned response is how human beings work we're conditioned to believe things we're conditioned at an early age to believe in santa claus and the tooth fairy and and the easter bunny and we're also conditioned to prejudice. We're conditioned to evil. We're conditioned. This is why parenting is so important. Uh, and I think really in our society today, we're lacking uh, the discipline of parents. We want to be the friends of our kids rather than parents of our kids. While it's okay not to do your homework, you know, we'll go to practice, you know, where parents are putting athletics over academics. You know what? We did shows on this before. Your chances of getting to the pros are zero. I mean, you're competing against the world now, and they all want to come here because this is the land where you make all that money. You know, Croatian players, great players, uh, you know, in basketball, they want to come here because they can't make that money there. Everybody wants to come here. And so the 1965 game was moved to Houston, uh, which was a less prejudicial city. And uh, it was played on January 16th, 1965 at Jefferson Stadium. Now, that's where the uh, 1962 championship was played. That is uh, now called the TDECU Stadium. And the... Uh, West defeated their eastern counterparts 
38-14, to 14, scoring 21 an- answered points to pull away in the second half. And so, you know, when you look at uh, the thing today, and it was uh, really uh, the 65 All-Star game was the AFL's fourth annual season-ending showpiece. Now, th- they played their games then at the end of the year, not uh, not in the middle of the season like basketball, hockey, and uh some of the other sports to do. And it featured the outstanding performers, a team drawn from the Western Division defeated the Eastern counterparts, as we said, uh, 38-14. The head coaches were Sid Gilman, the father of the uh, modern offense with the Chargers, and Lou Saban. They had faced each other in the 64 AFL Championship game three weeks earlier, and that's when Saban's Bills had defeated Gilman's San Diego Chargers. Running back Keith Lincoln had suffered a cracked rib in that game, but recovered to score two long touchdowns and win the offensive MVP award in that all-star game. He, uh, he had uh, done in previous year's edition as well. The defensive back Willie Brown of the Broncos, he played for the Broncos and was the uh, uh, MVP defensive award. And so originally scheduled to take place in Tulane Stadium, in uh, New Orleans, the game had to be moved in short notice to Jefferson Stadium, home of the Houston Oilers. And the 21 African-American players on the All-Star teams encountered, as we said, numerous instances of racism in New Orleans during the buildup to the game and voted to stage the boycott, with some white players saying they would join with and also boycott the game. In response, the AFL moved the game, and the game was televised by ABC, making it a final professional football game televised by the network until the debut of Monday Night Football 1970. And, of course, that would be the Cleveland Browns taking on Joe Namath and the New York Jets, if you remember that first game. Um, but it was uh, it was an exciting all-star game. It went on without a hitch. And I think one of the great things about it is that the white players, uh, there's a brotherhood in, in sports. It's much like... Uh, combat. It's much like the military. You know, you have each other's backs. And I think the great thing about that game was the fact that the white players uh, also refused to play if the black counterpart players were not going to play. They took a stand. Um, You know, in those days, you didn't make as much money as you did today. Most uh, players in those days had second jobs. A lot of the practices were uh, after 5 o'clock because a lot of these guys worked. Jim Brown, one of the greatest uh, football players of all time, unloaded Coke trucks for the Coca-Cola trucks. And then, uh, you know, by day ran the ball down the throat of his opponents uh, for the Cleveland Browns. So uh, universality has a way of melting away people who tend to be thinking that they're better. You know, togetherness um, melts away universality. And so, you know, Ron Mix didn't care that he was white, uh, that he was a Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famer. Jack Kemp, who became not only a great quarterback for the Bills, but also became a uh, a congressman, a senator, uh, before his death, a very, very... Uh, a substantial life, uh, you know, they put their pride away, they put their accomplishment away, they put their skills away as men and as football players, and join with their black counterparts, their African-American counterparts, uh, to uh, change 
and we saw a lot of that change in the 60s, you know, football players, uh, you know, athletes joining together black and white. Uh, you know, we saw the likes of Martin Luther King. And, uh, you know, today we kind of look back at it with, I don't know if you'd say horror, I guess you could say that, uh, the way we treated people. And now, of course, uh, we've gotten to a point where everything must be politically correct. You have to watch what you say. Uh, but maybe we should have been doing that long ago. And so, you know, when you look at uh, the situation uh, of the 1965 All-Star Game, it was a pinnacle game, not only just for the AFL, but for humanity. Uh, the co-MVPs in that game were Keith Lincoln of the Chargers and Willie Brown of the Denver Broncos. ABC had that great Kurt Gowdy and Paul Christman were the announcers and there were 15,446 spectators uh, at Jefferson Stadium in uh, Houston, Texas. So uh, that is the story of uh, this, uh, you know, great uh, game, the 1965 All-Star Game between the uh, Western Conference and the Eastern Conference. Well, I'm about to do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports, talking about the uh, unity of uh, some of the evils of racism in the 1965 American Football League uh, All-Star Game. Hopefully uh, you learned something about that today. As you know, we are a show that promotes education, and so we like to make sure that all of you knew and know about these uh, great things that have happened in sports. Sports Beat's been a presentation of Mountain Meadow Productions and Sports Beat Radio, and until tomorrow, all of you have a great day and great sports. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you soon.